0: Next hour on most of these the same frequencies. Hello ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the program. Today we are going to talk about a rather serious
1: topic. The future.
0: This is cracking the code with Sadir Ispahani. In this episode, a conversation with Steve O'Hara, the Valley Fund co-founder and general partner, shares how his parents' insistence that he take a role in a second grade play helped him find his voice in business. I was
1: terrified, but after I did it, I found that I had a voice and a newfound confidence that I could be able to to speak to people. It was a fear, it was something that I had to overcome. O'Hara was a college math major when he won a summer research internship at Xerox PARC. That was probably the most pivotal part of my life Professionally at that point, because I had no idea what business was. I had no idea what was going on behind the scenes in Silicon Valley.
0: This launched his career at Nortel in applications and systems engineering, then in sales and marketing, which led to entrepreneurship as a founder of CoreLogic in 1994. His successes continued with the founding of On Fiber Communications and Nebula. O'Hara says a key to leadership is good goal setting. You have
1: to have a really clear set on goals that you can work towards. That gives you purpose.
0: O'Hara hopes his legacy is not just measured by his business success.
1: You also want to be remembered by how you helped others in business, whether that's through mentorship or helping someone else along. You never know where the next great entrepreneur is going to come from. Now, your
0: guide for Cracking the Code, Sudhir Ispahani.
2: Aloha, Steve. Aloha. Welcome to Cracking the Code. It's an absolute pleasure to, one, know you and to have had the privilege of being around you the last few years. It's been a short few years that I've gotten to know you. I haven't spent a lot of time with you, and I'm looking forward to many more opportunities to do so. And I'm honored to have you on the show. Likewise. One of the early guests for our show. And uh, for me, it's been a privilege just to, to know your background. Steve, you've had an incredible life of success, but I'm sure that's not where it started. So uh, I'd love for you to, to share a little bit about uh, Steve, your childhood, your uh, upbringing, your parents, where you came from.
1: And well, thanks for having me. I was born in Los Angeles, and I'm the youngest of six children, three boys and three girls. My mother was an immigrant from... From Durango Mexico and she came to the United States to go to college right and she went to college in in Los Angeles my father grew up was born in Philadelphia and grew up in Atlantic City New Jersey and um, he lived through the depression and he was the oldest of of seven my brothers and sisters uh, three boys three girls my, my parents had one thing in common, and that it was their, their Catholic faith. Uh, my father, in fact, had spent time in the seminary and spent time in the Navy, and then he ended up going to University of Notre Dame in, in Indiana. And uh, my mother went to Immaculate Heart College in, in Los Angeles, uh, which was an all-woman's college, a very popular one, in fact, in the 40s and 50s. And when my father moved back, to, uh, came back to, the, to, to California, that's where they met up and decided to have a family. So I grew up uh, going to Catholic schools, playing sports. And uh, well, my parents were deeply involved in, in, in the community and also with the Catholic Church as well. A lot of philanthropy and volunteering, and, um, and my parents got us involved with that as well.
2: How, how did you, you know, you, you shared a little bit earlier, you know, before we got on the show about your parents growing up in the Depression era. And yeah. How did that shape, you know, adversity shapes all of our thinking and our lives in different ways. And how did that, that shape what you saw with your parents and how did that bring processes of, of core values into your own spirit for you to be the successful leader that you are today?
1: know it's hard for a lot of the younger people to understand what that generation was like, but they were coming off the heels of the depression and through right. a, a difficult time financially. My my parents they both grew up very modest with modest means. Their parents worked hard mm-hmm. to get them not only through the depression, but but stayed very steady on on their employment, which in itself is kind of an achievement, but. I think the household you, you grow up in is, is really obviously is the foundation of what your parents have have, have put in place, and through adversity and in, in the way they view the world, it, hard work is really the number one thing humility, hard work are probably the two uh, the two two most foundational things that that, that, that my parents have really uh, that they, they taught us, but they also taught us about achievement and achievement was done through through action. You had to put yourself outside of your comfort zone. Sports came naturally to us because my father was a former athlete, but other areas like acting wasn't and our parents would put us in situations where we had to break out of our our comfort zone. And when we were younger, I was terrified to speak in front of people. I was very shy, I wasn't sure of myself. And then in the my parents maybe try out for the play, the Christmas play in yes. second grade, where I had to do a soliloquy in front of everyone, including my peers, and I was terrified. But after I did it, I, I found that I, I had a voice and and a newfound confidence that I could be able to I, I could be able to speak to people. It was a fear. It was a um, it was something that I had to overcome, right. and I had to overcome by doing. I think those were the most important in my early life the most important things i had to i had to do to become you know to become more successful
2: it looks like you uh, you sort of had an incredible base of examples in your parents and you know we all have those life coaches starting with our parents and mm-hmm. and go and trust ourselves to leadership mm-hmm. downstream uh, upstream when were you first thrust into the whole area of Leadership and how did you see that as you uh, started to think about your career? I mean, maybe you can rewind a little bit and talk a little bit about your your uh, you know what you studied, how you came into the world of technology. You were incredibly successful, serial entrepreneurs. So.
1: Well, I think I started just just going back to my family. My dad and my mom were great examples for really two different reasons. My dad worked very hard. And we saw him work very hard. And my mom worked very hard at being a contributing member to the community. And so we always saw that. There was always an example. I also had um, brothers and sisters who were very high achievers as well. My brother George, we went to an all-boy Catholic school with a great emphasis on, on education, on academic achievement, but also on sports. My brother Jim was an all-star and and an athlete. He went to Notre Dame, played quarterback, and he was my older brother and the one I felt closest to. Mm -hmm. So he set the bar very high. He was not only a a very good athlete, but he was also a very good student. And it was good to have a role model that was so close to me Mm -hmm. in in age.
2: What a privilege.
1: It was. And then my older brother, George, was really a scholar and a gentleman. He got the coaches award and the most likely to succeed in high school. And my, my brother was uh, All-State, All-American in football. And so, but not only, you know, as an athlete, but also to be, you know, as, as, a, as a great student, to be to be able to go to Notre Dame. And so having that, I think, really helped me. It propelled me. Right. Because I had someone that inside the family gave me that motivation. And, and they all did for, for different reasons, but... I was probably on the path closest to my brother. When I decided to go to college, I wanted to go somewhere in California. I think back then, someplace that was uh, Catholic because that seemed to be what our family was doing. (laughs) And so I went to Santa Clara University in Northern California. And not knowing it then, but uh, I had no idea what Silicon Valley really was. I had no idea. The, the, The impact, I knew that there were some tech companies up there. I thought I knew what Silicon Valley was. I thought when I flew into San Jose for the first time, I'd see these shiny transistor chips on these sunburnt fields or something. <laughs> I that was my idea of Silicon Valley. But it was because of that incredibly good fortune that I went to Santa Clara and not someplace like Gonzaga or even Boston College or the other schools that I applied to and I was accepted to. But the fact that Silicon Valley was at ground zero of a burgeoning, high-tech movement that would change the world. I was a math major in college. I think it was math because it was easiest for me. <laughs> the other stuff were hard. Writing papers about...
2: Math's not easy for a lot around the world. You either.
1: know, literature. Th- there, there were a lot of interesting subjects, especially the Jesuits and the way they try to educate you about being the whole person. They make engineers study Shakespeare and they make... English majors study calculus. You know, again, they're putting you outside of your comfort zone. Right. You really can't slip by. And that's the interesting thing that a lot of people may not be aware about. But um, you're going to be challenged. Right. They're, they're, you're, you're forced to be a decathlete of a student. You mm-hmm. have to be able to understand things like that. And that's something that I appreciated. But math was interesting. We had a very small but a very good math department. My junior year... They were taking applications for, and I really didn't know what this meant, but Xerox was taking applications for an internship. Right. And I didn't know at the time, but it was Xerox Park. They wanted engineering. Computer science wasn't really a coin term. It was decision information systems back then, DIS. Right. But effectively, it was, it was computer science. And I was, uh, I was a math major, and we applied. They were going to accept two in the Bay Area, you know, interning uh, inside of Xerox Park. And I applied, I said, well, why not, why not apply? They accepted two at first. And at first they told me I was not accepted because it was, um, they picked a kid from Stanford and a kid from, from Berkeley. Then they came back and they said, we're gonna take three. Wow. And so the kid from Santa Clara was able to do this internship. That was probably the most pivotal part of my life professionally at that point. Because I had no idea what business was. I had no idea what was going on behind the scenes in Silicon Valley.
2: When did you come to realize that park, as you know, all of us in the valley now look back on it, was a foundational seat of innovation?
1: Not until about a month into it. Wow. Not, I, mean, I, 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 was, I mean, I was a pretty um, sheltered kid at that point. I didn't live. I mean, I, I, we, I lived. I went to Catholic schools. I went to... Santa Clara, which is a small, beautiful little campus. I was going around. I'd I, I heard about these things. You know, you, you picked up the Wall Street Journal every now and then. You read about Intel and Hewlett-Packard. Yeah. And I knew Xerox made copiers. Right. That's about the extent of it. <laughs> and I was looking about an internship, and I figured, you know, my parents want me to work over the summer, so what should I do here? So I applied to that, and I had some interviews. And frankly, I thought i bombed my second interview. In fact, I remembered that. It was after a rugby game, and then I had a black eye. Wow. I had a shiner that was developing, and I went into this interview with this woman, and she kept on looking at my eye, but she wasn't asking about it, so I didn't (laughs) know what she was thinking. Uh, I don't know if she thought I got into a bar fight or not, so finally I just said, by the way, this is from a a rugby game. She's just, ah, okay. But um, once we got in the park, I met the two other students, and they were very bright. I was kind of blown away by some of the subject matter they're doing. But they were having us do proofs. They're doing some optimization algorithm work on networks, more specifically on the copper lines. And we kind of went through an education on how the whole education on Bell Labs and AT&T and Pacific Bell, and how some of these lines were laid over 100 years ago. Right. And this was kind of before the fiber optic boom, and we said, how how can we make the most use of these cracked copper lines?
2: Right.
1: You know, we we want to go higher speed with modems, and modems was a big thing back in the late eighties. And instead of going twenty five hundred baud, we want to go twenty four hundred baud, right? or you know, like or 2, <laughs> Like wow, that's supposed to be blistering. And the only way they could do that is is by optimizing. You know, the speed through uh, reducing noise and crosstalk on these lines. So, they wanted to put our math to use. And our teachers at Santa Clara, our profs, were really good specialists on applied math. Yeah. They didn't want to learn some math, they wanted us to learn the applications of math. There's no use, to, I mean, math is a great equalizer, they said, but if you really want to do something that's special, you know, if, if you want to learn why math is important, put it in the application. So applied math was a really interesting thing. And proofs were always the biggest thing we did. So I had more experience doing proofs than some of these other kids who were studying engineering of this. So like, well, they were good at math, but they didn't understand how to do proofs. So anyway, we, we were working on this and we came up with an interesting way to use image waveforms to identify the noise and crosstalk and the disturbance on the line to be able to basically create these adaptive echo cancellers. To be able to blow the crosstalk and blow all the noise off the line and have a greater throughput, and so if you look at Shannon's law, Shannon's law was the big one—the maximum number of error-free digits across a bandwidth-limited line in the presence of noise and crosstalk—and that became our thesis. Wow! So we created this technology called adaptive echo cancellation using optimization algorithms and image waveform, and we got two U.S. uh, two patents on it. So and this was what in the uh, we are now looking back 1987
2: to 88 <laughs> at the cusp of foundational
1: changes in changes right. modems yeah. a Nortel everything I mean the carriers and everything
2: 2400 baud <laughs> yeah <That's>, uh,
1: <laughs> well do you remember that yeah. we had our modems there we had our modems there they had a stack of modems then they think about putting data through the switch through modems and we yeah. tried everything you know, <laughs> it was it was crazy but that was really interesting. That, to me, I realized at that point. I'd heard the story about Steve Jobs that had come through there to look at the um, the GUI and how he took the GUI from this. But I, I, I didn't have a frame of reference on what that really meant. Right. And I didn't have the frame of reference of what you know what Bob Metcalf did with the Ethernet. Uh, Steve Deering was there. Yeah. So all these guys who were legendary, and I knew they were legendary, but I just didn't know why. <laughs> I didn't have... The frame of reference in business i just thought this is a cool experiment we're just going to do it and this is what they want us to do i didn't know what it meant <laughs> i don't know how that translated to a product and so yeah. um so anyway that, that that was an interesting thing but i later i learned that coming being a, a xerox park alum was pretty cool
2: so when did you realize you know i mean clearly your experience of getting into park early on at some point you must have realized uh, this entrepreneurial dna and you. you're an incredibly successful entrepreneur here now looking looking forward fast forwarding 25 30 years ahead when did you realize that
1: after park i went to nortel xerox offered me a job in new york when they told me new york i thought new york was like manhattan right but when i flew in i was flying into rochester <laughs> If you've ever been to Rochester, you can imagine yeah. the profound disappointment <laughs> of what that was. Also depending on the time of the year you The time of the year was March, and it was gloomy, and it was gray, and it was snowy, and yeah. all the leaves were dead, and it was, it was just awful. And my parents were excited because they came from a generation where if you got a job, like an IBM, you stick with that for the rest of your life. You retire from it. They had no idea or concept of... Of that, I mean, there. I come from a family of lifers. My dad worked for the same company for forty-seven years. You know, my uncles, all of them. You know, my grandfather was a milkman for eight-hour farm farms for fifty years. He just didn't leave your work. You, know? <laughs> you get into it, you do it, and they pay for your education. They thought uh, i had I'd i hit the I'd hit the jackpot by getting a job. At potentially, yeah, at Xerox. And then I told them I didn't like Rochester, and they thought I was foolish. So I looked at Nortel because they came in on career day, and I got the interviews, and I liked them. And it was ap- applicable to what I was doing at Xerox because of the of the networking tech, you know. And they were working on stuff like ATM, the asynchronous transfer mode. And, yeah. you know, they were going up against the switches. And, you know, the first six months, they send you back into RTP, yeah, Research sure. Triangle Park, just to educate you on what what it is and they went down you know they said this is way this is how telecom happened i learned about bell labs um bell northern research is kind of was the equivalent of bell labs but this was a canadian company and the canadians operate very differently i didn't know that until i got into into management a bit so to answer your question how did i get into this well i started off as an engineer a systems engineer and then and then I realized, the, um, and, and then as I, I did that for a couple of years, so in the in the late '80s, early '90s, I was with Nortel, and after a couple of years being an engineer, to be able to move ahead at a company like Nortel, you really have to be aggressive about it. Yeah. Otherwise, they'll pigeonhole you as an engineer for the rest of your life. And I wanted to do something that was different than that. So um, they said, "What we really need, because uh, there, because there's there was this." big competition between AT&T and Nortel for the big switches, the big class five carrier switches. Right. And they needed someone who understood the product really well out in front of these sales calls. Yeah. So they kind of branded me as an applications engineer. And, and I just said, you know, that this, this, this is, um, these sales guys are making all this money. Yeah. They're not doing any of the work. Right. <laughs> it's the right. engineer that goes right. and sells the deal. And so, at, after doing that for eight months, you know, I, I went out and it was interesting. Um, and then this was right around, you know, in 1990 when a lot of the tech startup stuff started just to happen. Right. I mean, really big. There was Intel. Of course, everyone knew about Intel and Arthur Rock in the back of the envelope. Everyone knew about the garage story at HP. But other companies started coming up into it, these other companies. And all right. of a sudden, it's like we're, we're, we're living in, in the middle of this of this. Vibrant area. It's become ground center for innovation, and I'm sitting here at a big company. Right. But just three years prior, it was priced. If you got a job at an Apple at an IBM or an HP, boy, you you hit it. You, you it. hit the jackpot. Man. Yeah. It was like, okay, I'm calling mom and dad. I, I I got a job. This is great. And but but you know, I remember in 1990, it, it, it wasn't really. I remember thinking, God, this all this stuff is going around, and then I. And what's fascinating to me is that there was an event at the home of a venture capitalist. Somewhere in Atherton, and to be honest, I don't remember who the person was. But I just remember it was their home. And I said, what does this guy do? How did he get here? And I was like, well, we, we invest in startup companies. You know, we, that's like, well, startup, what's, what is that? What's a startup? I'm like, <laughs> that's, that's when the bug first got in my ears when I had to see it, I'm kind of binary that way. I have to physically immerse myself in something before I realize what the opportunity is. And, um, and then that really changed my life forever because it fascinated me, um, about the whole ecosystem between the funding and the, and the innovation and the type of person. And then I didn't know what an entrepreneur had to do to start a company at, at that point. But the answer, um, six months after that, my friend from Xerox Park introduced me to a guy who was um, who was an engineer, and there were some interesting things going on in the Nortel product that line, which was around risk chips that the processors and and how these customized risk processors were were being put into systems, and they had to build their own libraries and the systems to be able to do that. but the lead times from the chip suppliers were so long sometimes they would miss a generation and very naively, this guy I met and I decided to start a company. And we decided wow. to build synthesizable behavioral cores for his processors, which is something that I'd never done. And he was an expert in this area. But when in was design. that the time around? We started talking in 1993. Wow. Um, I left Nortel in 1994. I also dropped out of night school at Berkeley. I was trying to get my, my business degree and my, and my master's in computer science I should have just settled on one, but I was trying to impress my parents. Um, I started, we started CoreLogic, and we bootstrapped that. And a lot of our customers couldn't believe that we could actually build such a design core, and we did. We hired a lot of good engineers.
2: And back then, it was a very disruptive way of thinking. It was thinking, a very right?
1: disruptive way of thinking, and these and the risk suppliers... We're charging an arm and a leg. they were quoting 18-month lead times. And meanwhile, these, these, these companies were trying to get a leap on the market. We would go to systems companies and say, don't you want your own risk to do that? They said, yeah, how are you going to get a risk? Where do you get the libraries? I said, well, we're designing our own. So it took us about 18 to 20 months to get the first rev up there. We started finding the first of these customers. And then um, we bootstrapped the company. And then Intel came in and Mitsubishi came in. And uh, we raised about $3 million, and after we were able to get about, um, I don't know, it was only about $9 million in revenue, Micron had come by and said, you know, we're trying to put the DDR2 memory technology into different cores to integrate it, and Cisco is really leading the charge, and they, they want to do this. And we, when, among other ones, MIPS and others, we decided to do risk. I said, Do you think we can drop that in the same core? I said, Well, you don't have to drop in the same core immediately. You can do that in the second rev. What you want to do is is get the price performance to the point where it makes a lot of sense. So they bought it. (laughs) And so they decided to acquire us. So that was the first one. And and that, I have to say, we we did not know what we were doing at first. We had no idea. We had a lot of people, um, we had a lot of smart engineers. The customers that were looking at this were very forward-thinking. The first sales took nine months. Wow! And then after that first sale, after the first one, the big company, uh, others were a lot easier to be able to get and to close and to believe. Most of it was getting past the um, factor that people would believe that was possible. You know, we, we only raised about three million dollars, and they bought us for ninety million. This is back in nineteen ninety-eight.
2: How did you feel about that first success? Of getting acquired? Or what was the thrill of it? Uh,
1: They kept on telling us that. I, I, I didn't want to believe what they were hearing. I said, oh, well, let's just get this deal going. They said, no, we think we want to buy you. And this, like a, well, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's what we, so we went. And I, and I started the company when I was 28, 27. And it was about, about 34, um, 33 when they acquired us. And I worked for Micron for a year. And that's when you really start to, I mean, <laughs> Micron <laughs> in Boise, Idaho. I was, the new, I was the new business development guy in their advanced products group, which was almost exclusively selling to Sun and Cisco. Cisco was the big, the big company and their biggest customer. So that, that's basically what, what, what had happened.
2: Boy, what a what an incredible journey you're looking forward now 20 odd years ahead of that first success share with us a little bit about all those that that journey of, of success that you've had in, in, in all these other startups that you've founded
1: I think the most profound part of my life was meeting Andy Bechtelsheim. this was after uh, we were acquired by micron I'd say about six months into my when I was then a um, Micron employee right. I had a cliff I had a, t- a two year cliff to do this and then I was really working to sell the product we, we, we just sold to them you know sure. we're under a lot of pressure to prove this and I met Andy for the first time at Cisco I didn't know who he was I knew who Sun Microsystems was right. I knew who Scott mm-hmm. McNeely was because he was famous and, he was the right. front face he was a front face but I didn't know the whole story and when I met Andy I saw this guy come in with his tattered jeans and a shirt and stocks, I'm like, who is this guy? You know, <laughs> And I realized he's very high data and he knows his stuff. And he was asking a lot of questions that I couldn't answer. But then one night, it was it was a later meeting and we stayed in afterwards and, and I was talking to him and and I realized why he was at Cisco. He and David Sheridan had sold granite to Cisco. So I knew he had his entrepreneurial shops, but later in that, in the same discussion, I realized he was the founder a Sun Microsystems, and I realized what Sun meant when he was a PhD student at Stanford. He scribbled the words Stanford University Network, <laughs> that became Sun Microsystems. And I said, well, I was having a hard, hard time connecting the dots. I'm like, This guy, this humble guy yeah. who's an engineer who wears Birkenstocks, who shares an office with an entry level engineer at Cisco, <laughs> <laughs> is the guy who founded Sun Microsystems. I was blown away. He became my, whether he knew it or not, but I I always try to set up meetings with him just to talk to him. I thought this guy was the most humble, the most amazing guy I've ever met in my life. And he was, you know, he was at the peak of entrepreneurship. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, he preferred to be in the background, low-key, low-profile, but he was the brains behind the whole operation. Mm. Fanoad, McNeely, those guys came afterwards. Bill Joy, they all came afterwards. This was the brainchild of... of of Andy and I think that was the pivotal point for me it was even after my first company so so did that give you I
2: mean clearly he's a valley sage and back then he like you said he's a humble uh, technology innovator it give you an impetus to to look up to somebody
1: and say you
2: know drive just I wanted to
1: channel him I I knew I wasn't as smart as him yeah I knew I didn't have his background Mm -hmm. um I knew I, I I didn't build a a multinational model with the company like like Sun but I wanted to do that at that moment we had context it was business he was in charge of the uh, of the gigabit switching group at Cisco he was doing the same thing I was except at a bigger scale he was his company was just acquired by by Cisco uh, by Cisco and he was at Cisco and trying to build the next generation on the on the IP switching and I had this new chip that was uh, going to change some things and and then uh, and he asked me, well, what's next for you? And he says, he says, I do some angel investing. I said, really? What's, what's angel investing? I said, probably <laughs> what you did at Logic. You, you call it bootstrapping. I said, oh, okay. Um, he said, um, have you heard of a guy named Vinod Kosla?" And I said, yeah, I've heard of him. I've heard of Kleiner Perkins and all that. Because we were talking about fiber optics. Because this was in 1998. This is just before yeah. the boom in optics, you know. Everybody was building long haul and everything. So everybody's building long haul, but no one's building no one's building the last mile. Right. He said, we can't build the last mile. It's fraught with cost, everything, capital, everything you gonna do. So I said, yeah, well, right now these customers have one choice. They, they either go to AT&T or they go to the local LEC, and that's it. And they charge them an arm and a leg. I said, you know, I think the second mover advantage would be big. And this is what, you know, it, w- it was a free for all in optics. He says, I agree. So he introduced me to Vinod, who was a kleiner at the time, who was really interested. And I've been investing in these companies for the while. I, I was an angel investor in Serent, and I knew Vinod was the lead investor, but I didn't know, um, I didn't know him. So I went in there, and I was telling me about, you know, the Serent 15454 and how I could do it. And I realized I knew more about the product than he did. I said, do you know what we can do? Because Serent hadn't been acquired by, by Cisco yet. They were, remember, they were planning to do an IPO. Right. Then Cisco came in at the last hour to, to go and acquire mm-hmm. them. Yeah. And I said, we could do. I said, "No, we can build a, you know, we can beastly build a, a fiber network around the Serent 15454. He was also the investor in Extreme Networks. <laughs> I said, "Yeah." I said, "What well, we could do?" It. I said, "Yeah, we could have the photon layer. We can have DWDM. We can have Ethernet. We can have everything. So everything on there. We can have a multi-layer switching, and we can go in and we can beat AT and T at their own game."
2: That's when FDDI was still. So yes, yeah,
1: FDDI was all still big, and this is before Infiniband. So he says, "Yes, you could do this." And then storage was on the horizon. Yeah. Things weren't as clear as they <laughs> were like two years later. So there's a lot of, you know, opaqueness, I think, to the market, but what was fascinating to me is because Vinod reacted to the fact that he was an investor in Extreme, an investor in Serent. The fact that we're building a new company on top of those two companies that he invested in yeah. was really appealing to him. So that's, that's when I started on fiber. Andy seated me. Mike Volpe came in, thanks to Andy, and then they introduced me to Vinod and I incubated it there
2: and that was what in the uh that
1: that was in 2000 2000 the end of 1999 2000
2: another very successful company. well it,
1: it's interesting about on fiber was that was found at the beginning of the boom yeah you, you know what happened between 2000 yeah. and 2003 like the world went to hell in a handbasket, yeah. you know yeah. and the there was a dot-com bust there was 911 and then optical and telecom didn't went, 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 went into the penalty box yeah. you know, as far as Wall Street was yeah. concerned everyone said oh my god you know there's such a glut of long haul fiber and every analyst was every, every, analyst. these companies were raising hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. level 3 quests, and all this but what they didn't have yeah. was the was the last mile yeah and was the last leg and we were building that and we went out and got the CPCN from California. Yeah. We got all these and that in itself is a story and how we got that. It was some funny, funny stories that we could tell now, but, but we were building something of value, but it was extremely cash intensive. Mm-hmm. That went on for seven and a half years because of it was a slog yeah. during that period.
2: And those were tough years, the tough seven That was half.
1: seven and a half years, and they're like, Kleiner was going through all their different changes internally, <laughs> a lot of infighting. A lot of the companies like Bechtel and uh, GE and Bear Stearns that had come in, you know, they were expecting a quick. you know, everything was happening that way, you right. know. And Vinod was, was amazing. I, I learned more from Vinod during those difficult times and I come to realize he was more value-add than the entire board combined. Wow. And he stood he stood by his entrepreneurs, uh, stood by us in our decision-making. Kleiner wanted to get it off the books because seven years on, a, on our portfolio is about the maximum. With no end in sight because there was no liquidity for, for Telet. You remember that? Yeah. There was no liquidity for this. All these companies that were funded during 1999 and 2004 – Billions of dollars worth, gone. Truly billions. Gone. Yeah. They were selling fiber and conduit, pennies on the dollar, yeah. pennies. Yeah. Not even pennies in some cases. There were two companies left, On Fiber and Looking Glass. If you remember Looking Glass Network. Glass, yeah. Lynn Reefer. Even though there were competitors, we became friends because we were like last man standing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Quest ended up acquiring us. I think at a gross undervaluation, we were we were able to beat these these customers, these big carriers at their own game because we knew that just blind building wasn't going to work. There was never enough capital. I mean, there's there's not enough capital to build a last mile network. I mean, you need right. billions. So we had to customize. it. We would go to big enterprises. Mm. We we kind of uh, innovated this thing called adapt to build. Mm. Which I I came up with is it is like you go to a customer and say, Okay, we're not going to hodgepodge this. Where do do you need the fiber? Right. You need a leg there, you need a lateral here, you need this here, you need some dark fiber here, conduit, you need telemetry. And what's available is cheap, just piece it together. So we built these Frankenstein networks, which actually work better. And we guaranteed five nines on the SLA. And they would have these DWDM networks, in the case of HP, that would go from four Collins all the way down to Colorado Springs. Wow. And that got the attention of Quest because Quest was the first one shown the door during that that bidding process. And they said, who won this? It's on fiber one. And I think that's what really piqued their attention to to, to, to come out by us.
2: This was in the Nacho sure days or pre nacho
1: This was in... Uh, I, think, I think Joe Nacho was in jail by then. <laughs> <laughs> or just about in jail.
2: They were on a tear back. They were yeah, trying all to those some guys got trouble. Yeah, uh, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I, think, I think Nacho was there at the time. But right about that time, all that stuff started coming down. Yeah, so I moved to Denver wow. uh, in, in anticipation of this. And then they finally bought us. And then I became a Quest employee. <laughs> and my new boss was this freshly admitted Harvard MBA. He was 26 years old.
2: <laughs>
1: he comes in and he says, I just want to make something clear. I respect what you do, but I'm the boss. <laughs> I said, okay, this is good. This is not going to last long. <laughs> that was really interesting. So you talk about leadership and what you've learned. And you talk about adversity. There's adversity at every corner during United during thing. There was adversity with capital. There was one major assumption when we got funded in, at the end of 1999, that there would always be an ample supply of capital. Mm -hmm. When you endeavor to build a facilities-based carrier, a full carrier with telemetry, knock, and everything, you're going to need a lot of money. And back then, there was high-yield debt and all these different things that were available. All these vehicles just went away, disappeared, gone, Mm -hmm. off the face of the earth. And the big decision that I had to make with our other management was... As we looked at ourselves and we said, we're not going to be able to raise another nuclear capital. Right. What do we do? Do we fold or we slow roll this thing and just grow organically, right. year or painfully, but over a year? So, sitting people down and letting people go, we went from 270 people down to 43. Wow. Overnight. Telling, you know, Admins who are pregnant, eight months along, whose only income came from that in Denver was a very, very painful thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I brought some friends into the mix, and I had to let them go. It was horrible. It was. Mm-hmm. It was, and that all happened like in the blink of an eye. We brought that thing down to forty-three people. We slowed roll it, mm-hmm. and we grew organically that time. No more mass hirings. Just grow organically. At the end of the uh, by the time we were acquired, we're running at about seventy-three million. In revenue annually, we had less than two million in debt,
2: wow.
1: and we grew every quarter, even if it was modestly every month thereafter. After that, after nine eleven, and so our balance sheet was really compared dollar for dollar compared to other carriers was probably the most you know perfect balance sheet there is, mm-hmm. aside from some Cisco leases on equipment yeah. and a couple of things we pull out of SVB for you know, to, to be able to fund our, our build in a couple of these big networks we had to build. we had to buy some conduit and pull it. Yeah, it, it killed us. And we we're creative too. We, instead of putting fiber in, we just said, you know, are you okay with, are you okay with free space optics? Right. Millimeter microwave. <laughs> is that cool to you? They said, as long as you get <laughs> <give> us five <laughs> nines, it's, it's your neck we're going to strangle. Because <laughs> we can put a millimeter microwave. This is going to cost an 18th of the cost. Because right. we start digging, it's a hundred percent of capital. It's a hundred bucks a foot. So just do the math. <laughs> it's going to be really expensive. Yeah. Because every time we had to do that in a new city, we, had, we 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 had to go to city hall. We had to get the CPCN license <laughs> to be able to dig up the street, put up pylons, disrupt traffic. It was a major deal. It was. So, but that that I, I I thought that was a really interesting period for us. Mm-hmm. But Andy Vinod stuck by us the whole time. Even though the other investors who were scared, they'd never get their money back. Because right. we get raised about, you know, almost $200 million, $150 million. Incredible journey of creating
2: value companies, leading people, technology, innovation, everything else. What would you say the one sentence is that would define your leadership style?
1: I would have to say that leading by example is probably... It's probably the most accurate way to say it. I, I don't think pounding your chest being bombastic is, is, is and I've had those kind of people who manage me. I think the most effective ones are the ones that you um, that are doers that actually that lead by doing certain things. And and, and that kinda of goes back, you know, this goes back to what I saw with Andy Andy Becklesheim. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly not the only person who admires him. I consider him a mentor and he's kind of accepted that role, but I'm not the only guy he mentors. He's incredibly, he's incredibly, but he does it by doing and he does it in a very subtle way that's extremely effective. Mm-hmm. And he does it by doing. And watch this guy, watch how he handles himself. He comes into a meeting, he handles this. You know, I, I'm a big believer in, in speak being more quiet and carrying a big stick. Right. <laughs> You know, because we all seen guys. There was a famous, there's a great term I learned at, at Quest. Yeah. If, you, if you, well, you used to live in Denver, right? Yeah. Well, you know that group. You have a lot of egos. Yeah. Guys with huge, huge egos. egos. Like, where do these guys? Who, who do these guys think they are? Like, <laughs> where did you get this ego? They're on the planes. <laughs> on the planes and Denver was full of them. Like Jim, Jim, uh, Jim Crow, oh. level three. Oh member. yeah. God, I remember that. I lived a year and a half in Denver, and just in that period of time, I, I, I noticed this. But the term big hat, no cattle <laughs> was, was a really famous one around Quest. Which guys were big hat, no cattle?
2: That's a good one.
1: So I think substance over over the show, I think, is the most important thing. I don't know if this is the type of answer you want, but it's it's just... I think also you have to show that you care about people. Yeah. I think that seems to be lost. Mm-hmm. I think of I mean, everybody. I think the Valley has had a different definition of what success is for a long time. I remember when I first came in, I mean, you might remember this, but in the early, in the 90s, a lot of people said, I would never hire or back someone who failed at a company. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that? I remember, I some, remember. I remember people saying, I like, wow. That scared the hell out of me. You know, like, What the hell is this? Like, like, you only back someone who's been perfect their whole life? Yeah. Like, you know, but now everyone embraces failure yeah. as a fundamental building block. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and then all these companies that I've been a part of, and, and I failed during those companies. I failed at certain ways of managing. I failed at certain ways, certain business decisions. It didn't take down the company, but... You, you make decisions and then you, you figure out what works. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're complicated beings and we're thrown in the mix together at a company. And, you know, I mean, you have a startup, you know, things are at a fast pace, the expectations in there and you have to see what really works. Mm-hmm. But you get stronger as, as, as a result of that. But I think the Valley has had, you know, they've evolved their whole idea of what success means and that, how to get their leadership, you know, to, to your point. I remember Andy Radcliffe, someone who's obviously been very successful. I heard him, or I read something about him, and he was the one who said that. I would never back someone who has failed in a startup before because he doesn't know how to do that. I, I mm-hmm. was blown away by that. I was mm-hmm. like, wow, that's, that's kind, of, it's kind of cut and dry. It's like, yeah. well, I think there's more to that story, right. you know? And then he changes his tune, you know, mm-hmm. several <laughs> years later.
2: What an incredible ride you've had. And here you are uh, a a very uh, sage and respected Valley investor. So execution is a very, very important piece of, of creating success. So as a leader, how would you define execution? And now you're an investor in startups. And I'm sure you look at execution as one of the key uh, pillars of success. So, what's in your mind is that Make, like?
1: making the transition from entrepreneur to investor? I've, I've angel invested for a long time, but when you angel invest the way I did, you're not as involved, right? And I can certainly better articulate that distinction now between being a vest in a venture investor between an angel investor. Mm. As an entrepreneur, it's different. You know, when, you, when you're an entrepreneur, you you. If you build a company, you execute, your plan, you think you can do anything. Sure. Coming into the venture world was it was, uh, different kind it was of eye-opening. It was a completely different animal. And so obviously when you define success as an entrepreneur, is you, you, know, you have some very clear metrics. You're, you're building on organizations. You're making the right hires. You're hitting your numbers. And it shows when you go into the board meeting every month and say, this is what I promised last month. And this is what we hit. Right. <laughs> this is what we, it's black and white. It's pretty stark. Yeah. You're exposed naked in front of the board because if you don't hit your numbers, you have no excuse because you committed to it. You know, we, we didn't always hit our numbers. And I always felt that a lot of entrepreneurs will try to fudge the truth in the board meeting because they want to control how the board believes and thinks. And your biggest fear as an entrepreneur going in is the board's going to lose faith in you, you're going to get fired. <laughs> and so entrepreneurs will try to conceal those truths. Yeah. And the CEO will try to get solidarity around that. Well, I kind of know those tricks now <laughs> because I've been part of it. But I always felt that being more honest is probably the open thing and just give a rational explanation why you either hit the numbers or you didn't or whatever. So execution, I think, is successfully hitting numbers that everyone really or hitting what your objectives are, making sure everybody has the same expectations on what those objectives are. When you hit them, but execution also has to do with, um, you know, I th- it takes a whole company to execute. Mm-hmm. It takes a whole team to do that, mm-hmm. and that's the one thing I learned is that you can't do something by brute force. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, a, and a, as an investor, I try to find in people certainly if they had success in execution, but if they have a lot of the the qualities and intangibles the that they can make a great entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And to be able to lead by example, I try to look at somebody. Is this person going to be able to hire the right talent? Yeah. That's execution. Hiring the right person, you know, getting talent, it's it's a war on talent. So if you don't get the right people inside the door, you know, because, sure. and now talented engineers have 20 options. <laughs> they can right. go work anywhere they want. Yeah. They're the most sought-after people. So how is this entrepreneur going to be successful in hiring this? Like what vision... What compelling story does he have to be able to hire this person right. and you have to have faith that they're going to be able to do that yeah so I think that's all part of execution I think it's you execute on the little things yeah you'll execute on the big things
2: you've had a decades of experience now as a leader at the start of the show we talked a little bit about uh, you know the the upbringing your mom and dad the uh, value system they instilled into you. What are some of those foundational core values and morals that you still stick by? Some of the very basic tenets that that you grew up with that you brought into leadership and created that success for yourself and people around you?
1: I think goal setting is a very big one. Hmm. I think it's something now that, that you can learn at a very young age. It sounds pretty simple but Goal setting is, you know, if if you can see it, you can think it, you can visualize it. Your challenge is is to execute on that, is to to make it come real. Mm-hmm. And goal setting is the only thing that you can really do. As what I'm finding as I get older, you have to constantly reevaluate your goals. Right. Life changes things. Children changes things. Health changes things. Mm-hmm. Circumstances do, but you have to have a really clear set on goals mm-hmm. that you can work towards mm-hmm. that gives you purpose mm-hmm. and in, in you're working toward those and, and, and I think goals are, are part of leadership um, that's how you grow I think it's, it's constantly it's a constantly changing um, field of play so um, I, I, I find you know I, I think it just goes back to the pillars you know hard work and I also think how you treat people over the years is a fundamentally important thing. Yeah. You really can rarely do anything on your own these days. Yeah. You really have to have the support of other people. Yeah. How you treat people mm. fairly is really gonna determine what your support network is gonna be moving forward in the rest of your life. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing. As a young person, I you know, I, th- I think adversity is probably the biggest cornerstone of growth. Best place to learn it's because you're you're, to learn. you're at a fork in the road. Yeah, you have no choice. You hit a wall. Yeah, where are you gonna go? Yeah, you're down. You're dumped to this. I mean, it's it's you know in life whether you got dumped by your girlfriend <laughs> and you think the world's gonna end because of this. What are you gonna do? You're gonna pick yourself up again. You got to rebuild it. And I think adversity is one of the biggest facets of life that really forces and shows what kind of character you have yeah and character is a thing i think honesty handling that's all hand in hand with sure. with how you treat people right. and being forthcoming and honest and how you deal with people is going to be what your legacy is but i also think it's the credibility yeah where does credibility come from it comes from competence it comes from accomplishment but it also, it also, I believe, it comes from how you treat people. Mm-hmm. I look at Andy Bechtolsheim constantly. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, he, I'm sure he's got all these shortcomings, but it's like he's constantly able to build and build and build and redefine himself. He's doing things now he hasn't done. You know, he's learning art history now. Yeah. You know, he's never done, but but now he's doing it to enjoy it. Right. But he's constantly building on his track record. Now he's getting more involved in and in other things. You know, he used to not take on board roles, and now he's in, on the board of some okay. companies. You know so i it's it's good to have someone that you can emulate yourself with and but it's also important for your own to set goals you
2: know. very privileged journey you've been part of and I'll close off with this last question what what does Steve want to be remembered by uh
1: it's an interesting question I think it's important that you certainly want to be remembered by accomplishment yeah achievement that most everyone does but you also want to be remembered by how you helped others mm-hmm. in business, whether that's through, you know, mentorship or helping someone else along. You never know where the next great entrepreneur is going to come from. Yeah. You never know, you know, where the great person is going to come from in the world. The next Nobel laureate. I just, I just think, you, as I get older, it becomes more and more. I probably wouldn't have said this about twenty years ago, but how you treat others and how you how you help others. Mm-hmm. If others are are looking for guidance on to do something and if you're available to do it, then do it. I yeah, think exactly. that's your way to helping. If there's karma in the universe, you, you have to throw it back out there. <laughs> you know? That's by giving. That's kind of what you're doing. Yeah. You want to pay it forward, you know you yeah, you want to give it back. And I think that's that's the way I I want it. I think that answer is kind of evolving for me right now. Mm. I'm trying to figure that out right
2: now well if there's one thing I can tell you in the few years I've gotten to know you the entrepreneurs you support and the people that, uh, that look up to you are quite enormous out there and because I can. know you, you have your up days and down days like all of us as leaders do yeah. but uh, I do know that people uh, really look to you and the incredible uh, value system and the respect you treat them with all the people around you.
0: Final thoughts from your guide for Cracking the Code, Sudhir Ispahani. Sudhir, Steve O'Hara is a fascinating study of how someone comes from a certain value system that is instilled in him by his parents very early on, and he keeps that inside him as he goes through his career and then applies them as an entrepreneur, and it leads him to great success.
2: You now you're you're uh, you're spot on, Alan. And uh, he uh, he talks, as you know, early on in the show. He talks a little bit about his early childhood and his parents growing up in the Depression era and staying steady with a job to ensure that you know the family was taken care of. And living through some very tough times and developing a value system that Steve, I'm sure, observed from his parents that you really have to treat people right. You got to do right by people. You got to give when you can. You got to give back. He picked up on all of those and, of course, his intellect around uh, uh, using his brain with applied math and getting into Xerox PARC early on.
0: It's a great story about how they didn't actually have an intern position left over for him, but for some reason they saw something and they created an additional one. And then once he was in there, the challenge that these, these young men at the time were given was right up his alley because the other students, the other interns, were not focusing on applied math. And he was because of the school he was going to.
2: Well, he must have been awfully a lot smarter than any one of us, but, uh, but he applied something in a very focused manner that brought him great success early on in his career.
0: I hope people realize how important the challenge that he met. He made copper more efficient at a time when bandwidth rollout was going too slow. Our needs and demand for content and communication we just couldn't get enough bandwidth at the time it was very frustrating for me at the time i was just waiting please bring dsl to my home his brain was helping solve that problem yep
2: no you're you're right on and you know those were very interesting times and he's clearly one of those pioneers who lived and slaved through those times and there's a lot of arrows on his back to show that show that he was a pioneer uh, moving uh, moving us to what today all of us, uh, in fact, the millennial generation doesn't know what copper and DSL means and why we are in the state we are with broadband and now completely untethered with 5G and all of that. I think Steve's uh, Steve comes back to a couple of great value-related thoughts and insights that he leaves us with. And it's a theme probably, Alan, that you, you may have picked up and with some of these high-profile guests that we have.
0: They all have that core value or the values that don't change while they are so innovative.
2: You know, and he talks a lot about that, too. and, And he talks about mentorship. Kevin talks about that, too. He talks about honesty, transparency. You know, and he talks about giving and pay it forward, kind of, you know, if you really are successful, treat others the way you want to be treated and give back. You know, that's a legacy that you should really leave if you're successful i think that's uh, you know it's incredible to these guys, extremely successful he's been highly respected in silicon valley and uh, you know you, you you look at somebody like that and say look I, you stay stay humble and be respectful of others treat each other as well and give back